Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Living in a box with Marcus Veer on keyboards and synthesizers, Anthony Titch Critchlow on drums, and Richard Derbyshire on vocals formed in 1985 and released their first single, also titled Living in a Box, two years later. That track reached the top five in the UK and the top 40 of the Billboard charts. During my early years at MTV, their songs were played on heavy rotation. They released two successful albums and had a string of hit singles. But in 1990, when Derbyshire left, the band split in accordance with the contract they'd signed back in 85. In 2004, they reformed for a one-off gig with the original lineup, But this was not to be, and over a decade later, Titch and Marcus returned to the stage with a new vocalist, Kenny Thomas. This year, they're out on the road again, not with Kenny, as he had other commitments, but with Brian J. Chambers, who has sung for Pink Floyd, Beverly Knight, and who's been a backing singer for Prince, Mark Armand and Grace Jones. The story of the band, and particularly Marcus Veer's story, is intriguing. He might call it luck, he might call it right place, right time. 
But in the end, it's also the story of a combination of the right talent. So Marcus Veer, living in a box, this is a great pleasure to talk to you <laughs> because, you know, you created tracks that were very important to me uh, in the 80s. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm going to enjoy this. I know I am. I hope you do too. Uh, we're somewhat of a similar age. I'm three years older, but I'm not going to quibble about it. You might. <laughs> but I feel that we're of similar age. So we may have had some sort of similar experiences growing up. Now, you, I believe, grew up in Sheffield. Um, what sort of town was it and what sort of early years did you have in that town? Uh, Sheffield, uh, you know, in the 80s or late 70s and 80s when I was a teenager, uh, was, was a really vibrant scene. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why we all got into music because we were influenced by our local bands. I mean, we had so many, um, you know, Martin Ware with Heaven 17, um, and before that, Human League, um, you know, there was a massive local band scene with ABC uh, and so on. And, the, you know, the list goes on. Um, and we were hugely influenced by that. And there was a really good sort of pub scene where you can nip out to the pub and you would see any number of great bands from, you know, Clock DVA to, you know, There Must Be Russians and all these kind of really funky name bands um, and became, you know, some of them became really huge, you know, international stars. And, you know, I remember seeing ABC one of their videos on top of the pops walking by a sort of uh, rediffusion TV rental shop in the eighties and thinking, crikey, that's that lad came from Sheffield. That's where I am. And it, no, it really does inspire you, you know? So um, yeah, that was, that was incredible. And then we had the limit club, of course, which was probably three or 400 capacity club that had most of the bands that we all know of from Elvis Costello to the police to George Michael, when he was going out with Wham, who probably played their first ever gigs there. In fact, B-52s played, what was sort of largely um, accoladed as their best ever gig at the Limit Club in Sheffield. Um, and I remember being there to see that show. And, you know, it was just electric. Um, I want to come back to that in, that in a little while. I'll come back to the Limit Club in a little while because I think I've jumped a bit here. What sort of music did your parents listen to? And when did your tastes diverge from your parents? Um, my mother was a big uh, Burt Bacharach fan. And I still am, really. I mean, there's glamorous 60s orchestral and and horn arrangements and the, and the movies that they were often attached to was just you know the glamorous side of the, of the living in a box sound came from that really with the horns and the string arrangements although we were moving on to synthesizers so it's this the essence of what what that brought to music was was definitely Burt Bacharach or Burt Bacharach and Hal David songs um yeah and she was listening to some 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 Supremes uh, Motown um you know that kind of stuff so I was really interested in the three-minute pop song formula that was coming out of the states in the 60s um yeah my my sort of sound diverged i think when i got influenced by what else was going on in the charts at the time i was at, at school uh, in 77 when punk had reached its massive uh, apogee and that was really exciting it was so irre irreverent and uh, anarchistic and that was quite exciting and i think in terms of the lyrics which you know, we'll probably get onto for living in a box using words like that and ideas like that probably are a slightly post-punk sort of phenomena. And, and that, so I got that inspiration from, from all that I was hearing there. I mean, I remember being at school and everyone at school wanted to be a pop star. They didn't want to be a, a copy of someone. They wanted to be uh, an, a, an original pop star. I mean, music played, a particularly, I think, for our generation, probably more than any generation, such a massive role in our lives. Yeah. And also, I was fascinated by artists 
And later on, I realized they, they represented something that I was hoping for when I was younger. For instance, yeah. David Bowie being the outsider, the alien. And I wanted mm -hmm. to get the hell away from my existence as a teenager, you know, with all these exactly. problems that I had. Was it similar for you? And who did you actually sort of hook on to musically at that point? Well, I think you're right. I mean, this is some of, you know, arguments or discussions I have with my kids about music today, which we won't bore. Aren't we? we all know the sort of uh, churned out radio formatted um, stuff that comes out today that I have difficult differentiating between certainly musically and certainly image wise. And this because we don't have the individual individuality that we have now. I mean, it's arguable that the Ziggy Stardust or Hunky Dory for, for you know, um, Bowie, it, that, you know, they probably wouldn't even be able to get signed today. Um, you know, so we were listening to a lot of music that was really individual. So there were people presenting themselves with the fashion they were wearing, the look they got, the videos they were making with the MTV culture. Um, and the brand loyalty that went along with that. If you were into a band, you listened to every aspect of their record. You looked at that sleeve. Um, you, you, you were wearing what they're wearing, or whether you were a goth, or whether you were a new romantic, and the whole Spandau thing and the Blitz Club in London was taking off at the time, which was hugely uh, exciting to me to be able to, even though I was up in Sheffield, we all heard about it and the, and the local scene, in a, in a way, with the, the lead mill later and the Limit Club before it, the, the, you know, the, the whole clothing and the whole thing that um, came from that, that. And, you know, obviously with Culture Club coming up, it was like, wow, you know, we've got somebody here who's, you're not quite sure gender-wise, amazing sort of influences with the reggae and ska, with pop music. And it was all these wonderful blends that were going on that people were seemed to be experimenting and coming up with a, the 80s music that, you know, this, when, I, when, when we're doing these sort of tours now, I just listen to that one thing that sort of threads them together, which is the 80s. Um, you know, it's unmistakably 80s, but there is so much diversity in the sounds and the way and the formats that the people were using to write their songs and express themselves. It was incredible. One thing, you know, one person you mentioned is Martin Ware, who I know is a good friend of yours. Martin, of course, is, you know, one of the greats in electronic music and what he's actually achieved throughout his life has been uh, uh, immense. But he mentioned to me about a sort of uh, a youth arts centre called the Meat Whistle, I think it was called, which was in Sheffield at the time. Right. He used to go. And this was something that brought him in contact with other people of you know, the same type who were interested That's right. in That's developing right. music. Did you have, let's say, a sponsor or a mentor or someone around you who who really, it might have even been a teacher or someone who sort of pushed you to be uh, creative or maybe even your parents? Well, I think it was when I was learning to play piano, I mean, at school, when I was very, very young, like one of those Bon Tempe organ nasty little things, um, and started playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and all that kind of stuff when I was very young. And then I went to school and yeah, I couldn't really play the keyboards. So they made me play the piano, which was a good thing because the learning certain, I got up to about grade five, which is not by, is by any means genius, but it was enough to give me the basics and the technical ability to express myself. Because I think, you know, obviously from an instrumental point of view, you've got to be able to do it, otherwise you remain, you remain perpetually frustrated. And um, I got to about grade five, and my piano teacher said to me, um, you're going to give this up, aren't you? <laughs> and it was because of playing all the classics. And I thought, well, this is getting a bit tedious now. So he said, look, let's forget this. Let's go and get listen to some stuff in the charts. I'll teach you about harmonics and, you know, uh, harmony and, uh, you know, how to improvise and all this kind of stuff. And it was that moment that kept me into music um, where I'd hit that T-junction where I wouldn't be talking to you today if it wasn't for him. So 
Yeah. Now, you mentioned the Limit Club. I presume this came after school. And, uh, you know, had you sort of studied and had your O-levels or A-levels or whatever we did at that time, and, mm. and then you worked for the Limit Club, or did that come... What, what age were you when you actually went there? So, yeah, I did my A-levels, left school at 18. I wasn't really ever going to be a university person. As my kids who are now ascending to university, I was saying I went to the University of Life and go, yeah, great, excuse, Dad, for... T- titting around in, in the limit club um but i did i started work at the limit club when i left at about 18 um and handing out flyers and putting up their fly posters anything really to get involved with what <laughs> i found to be a complete magnet for for creativity in the music scene in sheffield in the 80s um did you ever get into so trouble like, for doing that yeah oh yeah i mean it was like a manchester mob and a sheffield mob who'd be out in the middle of the night putting up those by 40 by 30 quads or whatever size they were slapping on the you know the wallpaper paste sticking on a poster and then doing a runner um and then the manchester squad would come and stick their stuff over the top you know and, and then we you know all that kind of stuff and handing out flyers and all that kind of thing it was great it was really exciting because you could um you, you could sort of feel that you're part of something you knew that you knew what was coming up that no one knew and I sort of went from there really to being asked to sort of get involved in, because I was a young kid and they were slightly older, the owners of the club said, well, you know, you seem to be into the scene. What, what should we be putting on here? And it, I suddenly started getting involved with actually booking the bands at the Limit Club, um, which was really exciting because it, get me, it gave me a relationship with all the agents in London, which I didn't know at the time, but would eventually become really useful to me with Living in a Box in terms of meeting business pe- people. Um, and then they bought the, the Lyceum Theatre and I started working, really booking all the bands at the Lyceum Theatre for a while. And then they were booking shows all over the North of England as well. They set, they set up a separate promotions company, which I was sort of involved in quite heavily with doing, you know, the clash at Leeds Queen's Hall or whatever, whatever. And um, it was through that that I met Titch and started the band. In terms of the bands that were there, you mentioned some. I know there was, you know, U2, Kid Creole, um, the B-52s. I mean, there was a sort of a, a massive diverse mixture of artists that sure. I presume you had the opportunity then of seeing live. What, totally. do you, what did you glean from their, I know they were, they were on the, the, a lot of them were on the way up in their careers at that time. They weren't necessarily sure. at the pinnacle. It was one of yeah. the sort of early days. Um, what did you glean from the performances? Do you think that has become useful in your life? And what did you understand from them by being around them? Well, as you say, there was a huge diversity of music. So some of the sort of more sort of um, schizophrenic nature of a Living in a Box album. So you've got the ballads and the sort of um, West Coast R&B flavoured ballads in one end. And you've got the sort of more frenetic, hardcore um, beats of Living in a Box and Generate the Wave and, and, and Gay Crashing, which has got the, the other side. So I think it was the diversity of artists that I was seeing that made this Living in a Box not necessarily cleanly identifiable because it's got quite, there's quite a big wide spread of, of influences in, in what we do. Um, and so I think it was seeing the bands live. First of all, you know, seeing live music is just insane. I mean, it's insane when you're 18 or 20 years old and it's still as magical to me today as it was then. So seeing them, being involved in the backstage, putting them on, understanding what a rider is, organising, you know, the sound and getting the crew in early and then dealing with the public, selling tickets, promotions. You know, that gave me a very rounded idea of what it is from one end, just taking on the music and enjoying it as a punter, but also getting involved from a business aspect and what really goes into putting on a show. But did you want to be a pop star or did you want to create oh, music? Yeah, instantly. I just, I just suddenly thought, yeah, I can play the piano. And rather sort of selfishly and probably 
Um, although as it turned out, it was it was okay. Um, I thought, well, I can do that. I can do that. I, I, ha- I, can under- I can understand that with music, we all have some kind of, it's, it's like magic, right? Music is, to me, is magic. Um, some people can be involved in the magic and create it and others can't. It's, you know, we can all do different things, right? You know, but I just sort of thought, I can do this. I can, I, I, I can do it. I, I can see the way that I want what I do to get me up on that stage. I mean, it's funny because I've been obviously, you know, in my work in, throughout my life, I've interviewed, you know, really many, many uh, pop stars. And I've always uh, had the feeling that most are incredibly regular people, but then you find people that are that break a little bit under pressure because there is an immense pressure on someone being in the public eye, being on stage, creating music and, and also the problems that come with that because you're not always no one's always successful with what they create. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So Absolutely, that can also yeah. be a problem. Did you, um, did, you talk, did you manage to talk to them about who they were or were you sort of in a position where you could just observe? No, I was, I was very much a junior partner in the whole experience. Even though I was actually booking the acts, I would deal more with the tour manager than I would with the artists. The artists, even though, as you say, they were on the ascent in their careers, uh, I was too busy just making sure that the show went well from a business point of view. But then at the end, well, the band were actually on. It was that that was the point where I was going, you know, I'm wearing two hats here. I'm watching what's going on. I'm hearing the music that's influenced me and partly choosing the bands that the because I I love what they do and I wanted to be involved in their tours in Sheffield or wherever else we were promoting them. And then I was going on with my business hat and going, right, so how much money? What's the break even today? How much cash do they want? So, you know, and all sorts of craziness that would go on in the, in the 80s, you know, with, with art, dealing with artists from a sort of more of a managerial point of view, rather than me having time to go. So, yeah, Kid Krell, tell me about the coconuts. They look like really hot babes. I mean, you know, do you, don't you? I mean, you know, it was, <laughs> you know, uh, you know uh, or Shalimar who would come over and I was, oh, yeah, nice to remember. Love that tune, man. You know, I might get to say that. But beyond that, I, I didn't really get to get into it, into any deep, meaningful convos with them. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Were you already writing music at that stage? Well, I was right. Yes, I was, actually. It was all, though... It was strangely, I was sort of more influenced at that particular time by some of the West Coast virtuoso musicians. So someone like Larry Carlton, who's a sort of jazz guitar um, aficionado. And we had a little band that I set up in my dad's uh, warehouse that started off that was just playing live, like Greg Philangain's The Crusaders, that kind of a sort of really nice uh, sort of roadsy chops and beautiful guitar parts and Titch got involved and started playing the drums. So we had a little trio, but it wasn't actually formulating three minute pop songs that were commercially, um, um, you know, sort of uh, sensible in, in that way. It was more just sort of getting into the music and the skill and the, and the, yeah, they just, just, I don't know, just getting into a, a musical fantasy land in a way. It wasn't, it wasn't, I say songwriting per se, it was just getting them, getting our, our, our chops going on, on on our musical instruments. It was very instrumental based. So um, and that later came into play because, 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 like I was saying to you before, grade five on the piano doing classics is one thing, then going into a bit of a jazzy kind of like, let's just get these musical chops going and have, enjoy just not writing a formatted three, three minute pop song to eventually doing exactly that. There was a process. Um, so, when did you actually meet Titch? And 
what was your impression of him? I, I, I don't know if you met him at school or you met him actually sort of later because of this live venue. Yeah, well, I met him because um, we were doing the Clash at Leeds Queen's Hall and that particular tour was uh, they wanted local band support. Um, and so because I was really involved in, 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 in the local band scene, um, it was fairly easy for me to get tapes together of local bands and reach out through the star in Sheffield or whoever else it was. I can't remember. We, we just said we're looking for, t you know, we're looking for support for this. So of course we were flooded by demo tapes. Um, and one of the demo tapes was a band called Typhoon Saturday, who uh, Titch was playing drums with at the time. I, I actually found out where the promotions office was and came in and said, listen to this man, this is just going to be, you know, we'd love to do the support. Um, at the end of the day, they didn't get the support, but I thought the drums were amazing. And in a totally selfish way, I was saying, mm, I could really do with a drummer as good as that. Um, and I said to him, look, we, we can't put you on at this show, but I am putting something together. Um, and in the meantime, he was working on the moor on a market store in Sheffield. Um, and we, we were at the Lyceum Theatre. And I said, do you want a gig as a, like, have you ever, do you know what a follow spot is? And he said, no, what is it? He said, well, you know, when you're on stage and you follow people around with the spotlight, the CSI follow spots, so the big massive things in those days, you know, got up to about 300 degrees centigrade and burn your face off. But you, but, you know, so he said, yeah, well, it's, I don't know what it was, five pounds an hour, which was quite good then. So he came down and he got on the follow spots into the Lyceum Theatre for some show or other. And we started chatting and getting on and it's like, he was like like me, really into it. And we just became really good mates. And, was, you know, as you do, you start talking about music and, and all that kind of thing. We got on so well that we started to put a little band together. And I remember Live Aid being on uh, at the time and as me going around to his or him coming around to my house and I was watching Live Aid going, Jesus, this is just, this is amazing. I mean, these are, look at what, what's going on. Uh, the artists are incredible. Um, we've got to get a piece of this. Surely we can do this. And was that 84? I'm not sure if it was somewhere around there. Um, anyway, so we hit it off really well and started rehearsing, started playing. And then we, we did that jazz thing, which I was talking about. And then we got into a studio and started recording songs and, you know, for about a year or so. Um, and, and yeah, that's how we, that's how we met basically through me being in the promotions business and him being applying to be a, you know, a support act. What was the moment that you realized that what you were writing, uh, could be successful in the right combination with the right people and so on and so forth? Um, I think when I, when we, I'd first written the backing track to Living in a Box as a backing track, actually for, this sounds so out there, but we had a friend of ours who had a, a hotel chain who we'd met on holiday, me and Chips went away to Greece and he got a couple of Sheraton hotels in New York and he, he took pity on us. I think he thought, well, here are a couple of down at heel musicians and they'll never do anything, but listen. So he said, why don't you, you look, uh, we've got opening a new bar. Why didn't you write a jingle um, for this bar in, in, in the States? And um, we'll put it on the radio, we'll pay you for it. And so I went away and wrote, what was the backing track to Living in a Box? So somewhere out there is a jingle with the backing track of Living in a Box on it and they paid us for it. And then I started thinking, as I was listening to that backing track, Titch and I were in the studio. I took it home. I had about a week or so before this, had a conversation with a mate who said, you know what, I feel like I'm living in a box. And he was living in High Park Flats in Sheffield. And I didn't think anything more. It's just something that sort of stuck in my head. And as I started to sing over that track, I sort of worked, I thought, well, that just sits so tightly on that beat. And, you know, you've just got to have that moment where the lyrics and the music cannot be separated. And you think, well, that is pretty awesome.
And I remember saying to Titch, right, this is how it goes. And I sang it to him over the top. And he said, you can't have cardboard in a song. I mean, what sort of shit is that? And I went, well, no, you can have cardboard in the song because that's precisely why, because it's that's the one that is the earworm where people go, what? Oh, yeah, I can relate to that. You know, I understand what living in a box is about and what that means to me. Um, and that was probably the moment when it was like, wow, I think we've really got something here. Although it wasn't really until Richard sang on it in the demo studio that it was then, then it was like, okay. No, not only got the melody, the song, the lyric idea, which is a bit kooky, then this dude sings on it. Wow. Now we're in business. Were there other, were there other words that came up apart from cardboard? Uh, no. No, because I was looking for that syllable that just dropped on that. And, uh, and that's, I think it was sort of slightly biographical, autobiographical. Um, you know, I was at home in just outside Sheffield in my mum's house. I hadn't really left home then. I mean, I sort of had a girlfriend in Sheffield, so I was doing going toing and froing. We, this my mother's house is about twelve miles outside, and I was feeling, you know, like you said, you know, we're frustrated with with my life, and I wanted to to break break down the what I would perceive would just sort of almost was like some kind of feeble mindset that was the only thing that was stopping me getting to where I wanted to go, and that is the cardboard box you know that it is breaking through the cellophane line again cellophane i'd stick another weird word in there um and yeah so that that's what it was all about really and it just sort of came and i think i wrote the song i mean literally once i'd got it maybe an hour i got it down and i was like gee i can't get it out of my head this is awesome and that to me was the you know as, as we went on to and record it, it became what it became i mean you mentioned richard Derbyshire. what did you know about him before that moment because he was in the same studio. He was, time, yeah. He came he? In, sorry. Yeah, he came in after us. Um, we were just, I think we were reeling off. We were, I think we were looking for other singers and we got other people in and I'd put a guide vocal on living in a box, really reeling off the quarter inch or the half inch tape as it might've been in those days. And Richard was waiting to come in next. And we'd heard about this amazing guy. We'd had a, we'd got an engineer who said, oh, there's this guy coming in. You know, I don't think there was a chance that he'd do your stuff because he's a bit more middle of the road, a little bit more Chicago, a little bit more, you know, I mean, he's got the most insane. He's Michael McDonald. He's a you know, white kid, but you think he's black. And it's like, oh, wow. OK, so we met him. And here comes this blonde Elvis, amazing guitar player, walks in. He said, Marcus, that's that, that. I love that tune. That is so on it, mate. He said, well, I said, would you stick a guy vocal on it? Um, and he said, all right, well, I've got 10 minutes. Let's see how it goes. So he stuck a vocal on it. And of course, it's just like, oh, my God, I mean, it's done. We're done. Um, and I said to him, you know, were you up for, I don't know. I don't, actually, I don't think I said anything at the time. because I think he was trying to crack on with the session, but I got hold of him the next day and said, this just sounds incredible. You're up for doing something together. And he said, well, I'm looking for a solo deal. And uh, on my own, I'm not really interested in being in a band. And I said, well, we've got the song. You've got the voice. Honestly, mate. And he went, yeah, I can tell. I can see what you're saying. So I said, if we can just do another couple of demos and I can go to London with Titch and we can try and get a record deal, you carry on doing what you're doing with your stuff. And if you get a record deal and you fly with your stuff, well, tough luck to us. But it's almost the first across the post. If I can get a deal with this, we didn't have a name or anything. Um, and he said, well, if you can get a deal, I'm in. And, Did you ever yeah. think about the dangers of having three people where two of them are friends and mm. one of them is an outsider. I know immensely talented and so on. But did yeah. it ever come up in your mind? Uh, could, you know, could this be a dangerous sort of partnership? Absolutely. I mean, it really did. And it, it turned out to be so. I mean, um, yeah, there was always Titch and I. And then there was Richard. I mean, listen, let's, let's get 
up to it. We had the most amazing time and we still remain great friends to this day. But there was always going to be a little bit of, of Richard wanting to do a solo career um, and do his solo thing. And, he, you know, he's a songwriter in his own right. Um, and so, yes, there was. But we just took advantage of the moment we were in. You know, to be honest, it was just like, listen, this guy is just so good. Um, I could wait around for another couple of years and never find anyone as good as that, who, you know, who was a lovely guy and is a lovely guy, you know, and, and it, you know, so yes, there was always at the back of our mind, both Titch and I spoke about it at the time. It's like, this might not be for the long term, but let's just go with it. Now, you mentioned before that working at the Limit Club, you got to know agents, you got to know people that were connected to these stars that were working there. And these people were in London. Were those the people then that you went to initially? Who did you go to to, to actually get a deal? Did you go straight to record companies? Did you go to someone else? Um, Titch and I jumped in a car once we'd got Living in a Box, Generate the Wave and one other, I can't remember, off the first album um, and jumped in a car. And in those days, it's not as easy now, but I suppose you could still do it. We arrived in London. For some reason, we came off the M1, drove through into the centre of town, stopped up in Holland Park and there was a red phone box, which is still there to this day and got in it and opened up the yellow pages and started at A for A&M, met them, can't remember what B, C for Chrysalis, and we got a record deal. Um, we'd also talked to MCA and Virgin, and it all got a little bit crazy. They all went freaked out, and this is a hit. We've got to sign you, and we had to get a manager who then had to hide us in a hotel because it all got quite, you know, Simon Draper and Richard Branson invited us down onto their hallowed barge and made a veil, and we talked to them. So it was literally, yeah, listen to us. We're here. We're Northern lads. And, and they, you know, they still to this day, uh, Chris Wright, I remember you walking in, you know, you're about two foot off the ground. You knew you'd got something. And we thought, OK, well, we'll listen to it. You know, can you imagine trying to do that nowadays? It's all like, oh, no, sorry, you've got to know the right people. And it's all a bit digital. And, you know, send me some stuff. How many followers have you got? We just literally tore the doors down and went, listen to this. Um, and yeah, everybody we played it to just loved it and got it totally. I mean, the way that you say that is is a sort of one-sided way because there's three guys, you know, that, well, let's say, you know, you and Titch is particularly coming down from Sheffield, um, going to get a deal and being excited, you know, being two foot off the ground, being excited. Record companies weren't always full of nice people. Do you know what no. I mean? You oh, yeah. and, and I know you weren't completely green, um, but were you aware of the deal and were you aware of what you were signing into and what you were sort of entering at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, we, we, well, we started with a publishing deal because they helped broker the final deal and we got Chris Morrison who managed, you know, Major and Ultravox and had managed Thin Lizzie and, you know, was doing, you know, did really well in, in terms of, of, of helping us understand what we were getting into. In retrospect, we made a mistake possibly with going with Chrysalis because at the time they were absolutely a mess in the States. So we never really got to get a piece out of that pie, which was over 50% of the world market at that time. So we were recouping out of less than half of the world when that Living in a Box turned out to be a hit in every country of the world. Um, although it only got to number 17 in the charts in the States and then they pulled the independent pluggers off and then that was the end of that. So even though they were doing well with Billy Idol and Huey Lewis in the news and, and they were absolutely smashing it out of the park, unless you were signed in the States by Chrysalis, if, they, if you were signed in the UK, they kind of felt like they'd inherited something that they then got to go and sell and didn't really matter. They didn't have any personal investment in it. And that was very much 
in hindsight, a mistake to sign with Chrysalis. But we were happy that we had got the record off the ground. Listen, we had a hit record, a great career with them, but it was limited in terms of what we felt we could have done in the States. I mean, remember that we're living in a box when that foot record first broke in the UK was on Tony Brackburn's Radio London show and he had Bobby Womack in the studio at the time and he played the 12-inch Arthur Baker mix of Living in a Box three times back to back, which he's never done before or since. And Bobby Womack decided to go off and <laughs> take the record and try and put out a seven-inch version of that with MCA in the States before we got our record out. So in the way, Chrysalis ended up having to injunct that. But the the the, the the process we went through with Chrysalis, we, you know, we really had a great time with them and, and we did very well in, in everywhere else. But the big bugbear with us and part of the reason why we didn't really go beyond uh, the second album was because we just couldn't recoup in the States. And, and Richard particularly was found that hard to, to, to swallow. Um, it's like we've given you a great record that's perfect for, for the States. And listen, to this day, people still in, in America know the song really, really well. But we didn't feel we got our just desserts there. So that was the big mistake. How did you get to work with Richard James Burgess? That was a sort of, you'll be working with Richard James Burgess, um, who, by the way, is currently in West Hollywood. And we're going, right, great. <laughs> Fantastic. We're freezing our yin-yangs off in Sheffield. Um, we're just looking at trying to buy houses in, or rent house flats in London. And about two weeks later, we're in West Hollywood. It was, I mean, he'd done uh, Trapped Colonel Abrams, to be less flippant about it, which we thought was a great record that sounded really mighty like we wanted to sound so that was the key really it was just like okay well that also is you know the, the original idea was just to go and record a single go and just go and record living in a box but we got on with him so well and we had a, such a good time uh, we were reluctant to come back to the rain so i think we were you know quite happy to go and, and record with, with richard he'd also um, done you know i mean he was really uh one of the first major producers in the era of new romanticism, wasn't he? To cut along that's right. I mean, it's short. I mean, yeah, I mean, he had started with landscape. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I know he's yeah. worked on some fabulous things. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, he'd worked on some fabulous things. Um, I think we found personally that when, when we actually got to it, I don't know because we, we've actually just found we think the original demo of Living in a Box, which I still haven't heard, but that Titch's brother is just moving house in Derbyshire and he said it's in the loft. I can see it. I can't wait to hear it because in my head. I always thought it was even better than the finished master. And I think sometimes when you, as a recording artist, if you've, if you've done a great demo and you've got all that energy and that was the one that got you the, uh, the record deal, you were emotionally attached to it and then you've got to start again. It's, it, you know, the technology wasn't such, especially for us recording on an eight track, that you could just put the stuff out like you can now or tinker with it and stick it out because you recorded it on a Mac in digital pristine land. So going over it again and recording the whole thing again, again was sort of... Uh, well, we, we found that quite hard work and we're never really satisfied with, with the finished record. Um, we also had some, some technical issues. I think the, um, the, the engineer was blowing a lot of coke up his nose at the time. So <laughs> we ended up having to get Tom Lord Algy, who just won an award for Back in the High Life against Steve Wynn at Wynwood. He just won a Grammy for that to mix or remix it because we had to do a lot of re-recording to get it to the point where we could put it out. Now, you said that, you, you know, you went to L.A., you just signed a record deal, you went to L.A., yeah, and at that point, you hadn't had a hit, obviously, because it was pre. No. Uh, no. But you've gone to LA, and there you are. You're probably on cloud nine, I would have thought, going there, totally. thinking, oh, God, this is, this is amazing. What a life. What happened in LA? Well, LA, uh, well, listen, I, I don't know how, how, uh, how far we can go on this conversation. Go as far as you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, LA in the 80s, what can you say? It was, it was insane. 
You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I mean, you know, I think we'd arrived with a, with a tour manager who'd come from the management company with us, who literally introduced us to some girls that you used to know at the Cat and Fiddle, which is the English pub in, in Hollywood at the time. <clears throat> and we arrived knowing nobody and we left and we threw a party for over 500 people about six months later. So we, we got very much into the scene. You know, here are three English boys with English accents who've just got a record deal. I mean, we weren't manhole cover designers, do you know what I mean? So, you know, if you're going to Hollywood, you want to be in the business. I would hate to just go there as a punter. I mean, you are, you know, you, want, you know what it's like. And everybody wants to know who you are. OK, you haven't got a record out yet, but here are these three English kids have got a hot record deal and they're recording in Hollywood and they've got you know, $1,000 a week per DMs each, and they've got a car, a flash car to drive around in, in a nice apartment. So, well, what's not to like, you know? So we were invited to virtually every party. We, you know, we were ligging in a box. I think it was probably more an happy, a, a, a better name for us. So we were at every opening. We went to the Chanel's house, which had a river running through it. We went to Sammy Davis Jr.'s place to his party. Um, what was that like? We invited up to the Magic Castle, you know, where they do all the, where that's all based up there. Um, you know, we just we got into a real, I mean, a real scene. And I can remember there was a club called the 2020 Club and there were, there, all these artists would play. The house band was Earth, Wind and Fire, if you can imagine that. Prince would get up and do a track. Chaka Khan would get up and do a track. And it's just like, oh God, you know, would, is this actually happening? And, you know, of course, the musicians that we'd all seen on record labels, Paulina da Costa on, you know, on albums or you know, whoever, um, you know, there was, there was loads of them, you know, we used the backing singers from Luther Vandross's band and we used this, the, the sea wind horns from Earth, Wind and Fire. It was just like, <laughs> you know, this is, this is amazing. You know, this is absolutely insane. I mean, one of the really fascinating things about what the, the record company uh, did is that they pushed you in a sense, with a sense of anonymity. Totally. So could you just tell me about that? Well, yeah, again, possibly another mistake. I mean, I think one of the first mistakes, and I would advise against anybody using an eponymous band name. So Living in a Box by Living in a Box. We couldn't come up with a name. We just couldn't. We, we, we probably should have worked a bit harder and flippantly went, Ugh. And they went, why did you call you Living in a Box by Living in a Box? Which is great in terms of drumming the first hit through. But when you start going Living in a Box, Room in Your Heart, Living in a Box, Blow the House Down, like, oh, what? And I'm sure Big Country maybe have had the same problem and others. Um, so that wasn't ideal. Um, what was the question again? Um, that you were pushed with a sense of anonymity. You know, right. you were almost like yeah. a black band from America, but you weren't. Well, you that were was three yeah, white that guys. Was another, that was another sort of clever little marketing ploy. So we had the weird thing with the band name. The second thing is with Living in a Box, the first single, they wanted to put out the uh, 12-inch Arthur Baker mix out on a white label by mailing it in from New York with a New York stamp on it to all the clubs in the UK so that the UK DJs thought we were an American band. Um, and it was at that time, there was so much going on in the, in the, in the music scene in New York and, and the underground dance scene that it was just cool to be, you know, coming from the States. They probably would the chance, they, I think they, they, they hedged it. And then, well, if they're three white middle-class white boys from Sheffield, you know, does anybody care? We've got an absolute monster on our hands. But if we if we don't know if we don't know who they are, it's totally anonymous. It's mailed in from New York. Maybe they'll play the record, and they did. It went to number one club, um, which was a great springboard then to to people like um, you know um, you know the radio DJs and and in there and going to radio from the club scene like Tony Blackman and so on. So we talked about. But um, you know, you pay a price for that anonymity because they want. I think it then sort of. Well, we were seeing Curiosity Kill the Cat all over the front page of Just 17 magazine or whoever else. 
uh, we weren't doing any of this. Uh, Richard, of course, was the most um, sort of publicity shy pop star that's ever existed in humanity and actually was quite happy to to not have any um, images or be doing photo shoots or all that kind of thing. Titch and I sort of went along with it. We just thought, well, this is fine. Um, but, you know, after a while, even to this day, people don't really know what living in a box looked like. I mean, we can walk out on stage. Hey, it's living in a box. And they go, yeah, it's like, oh right oh yeah sort of um and it's 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 a bit of a weird one but i don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing to be honest it's just the way it was for us i think there's a positive side to it as well because being in the public eye although you know i think a lot of people you know sort of see that as an ideal that they would like to be well known they'd like to be you know famous in some sort of way being in the public eye does have uh, a side to it uh that isn't isn't that comfortable? Oh, yeah. So maybe that was also something that allowed you to have a private life as yeah. well. Well, I think so. I mean, you know, we, either way, we would we would just do the interviews that we we thought we wanted to do that were not particularly um, you know pop orientated. So we do some more of the music tech magazines, or we do the Face or Q magazine. Um, that was in the UK and other territories they had took the handbrake off completely and i remember in japan it was it was madness i mean they you know split us up when we'd fly over to japan and and we wouldn't see each other for three days because we, we would all be doing separate photo shoots separate interviews separate tv interviews so they could maximize the amount of time that we were there italy a little bit like that and then, then there were occasions when it was you know yeah police outrider protection and all this kind of nonsense um so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we could walk around Notting Hill having a great old time and just, you know, having watched ourselves on top of the pots, you go out and nobody knows who you were. I mean, top of the pots probably was the first time I was like, ah, that's what they look like. But of course, by that time, you've got a top five record. And everybody's going, yay, this is great. I never knew there were three white kids from Sheffield. In fact, I think up on Wikipedia had us down from Manchester up until about the week before last when somebody kindly changed it. Although Richard was originally from Stockport, so maybe they got it from there. But yeah, the anonymity thing never really bothered us that much. But it's a bit of a weird one sometimes when people don't know who you are. I bet it was one of those people who were putting up the posters from Manchester back then who wrote that yeah, probably. entry. Yeah, let's, just let's to piss you off after well. all these years. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I mean, you said that, and I think that's an interesting point about living in a box because it's living in a box and the living in a box track and that you but get the album known by for one a, thing. Living in a box album made, as well. Yeah, you made some fantastic um, tracks at that time. Um, do you think then that that really was part of the reason or you, you know you mentioned the record company and the record company not being able to chrysalis not really being able to promote like uh, room in your heart uh, yeah. in America well, whereas once, it was a hit in Britain wasn't it it was a hit all over the world I mean it's one of the biggest songs I mean just even in terms of what when you see your PRS and you see where things are being played and the longevity of that song has had it's probably the song the song I'm most proud of um, and it was a big record everywhere, except the States, when I think they managed to get it to 67 or something. And of course, by this stage, when you're looking, you know, obviously we were not in L.A. on a freebie. You know, you're paying for that. You could really do with recouping from the whole world and making sure that every territory is doing the best to make to sell your records. And when I think we'd gone over on some unfortunate West Coast promo tour uh, in the States and they just tanked room in your heart. And I remember Richard being like so fed up. It's like, what are we doing, guys? I mean, you know, the bill is, is huge. We're doing well everywhere. We've always wanted to have some success. We worked with Albert Hammond on Room in Your Heart, and he, you know, was having hits that were just 
absurd. You know, I mean, he'd written the Olympic theme for Whitney Houston. He'd written to all the girls I loved before and started with Little Arrows and ended up in, you know, uh, yeah, just writing hit after hit. Tina Turner, you know, go on and on and on. As Wad had that big don't hit, don't turn around, he'd written that. Um, so he was well used to having hits. And when he when we'd finished, I'd finished with him writing uh, Room in Your Heart, he said, my God, this is probably my favourite record that I think I've probably ever written. And for a guy like that to then be told that Chris's record had fumbled it to number 67, it's like, what are we doing? Was that why Richard came out of the band? The five years were up and you'd, you'd actually, you were um, uh, recording the third album, I believe. Was that... Was there a particular moment? Well, there must have been a particular moment where it ended. Do you remember that moment and yeah. what exactly happened? Yeah, I mean, Richard has sort of made noises to us before um, about, you know, and I, well, I couldn't disagree with it. It was like, listen, we're getting on fine. We, we love each other and we're having a great time. And the musical aspects of what we're, we're doing were very converged. I think there was an, two thing forces at play. One, which we've just gone over, which is the issue in the States. The second one was that Richard definitely wanted to get more songwriting of his songs on, on the record. And I'd written the hits. And so therefore I was principally earning the most money out of it, to be brutally honest with you. And I think Richard always felt, look, I'm, front, I'm fronting this. I'm singing your songs and I really want more songwriting. And Richard's songwriting um, centre was much more AOR, middle of the road than where mine was. Um, and so when well, I said, Richard, you know, obviously trying to appease to a certain degree, well, let's do some more stuff like you would do. And then suddenly Living in a Box starts to become something else. And I think at that point, I was beginning to resist how far we would go into, into, into going where Richard wanted to go musically. And Richard just said, look, I think, I think we're going to have to call it a day. And then let's get also brutal money-wise. Whenever ever any artist signs a record deal, they are signed jointly and severally. And I think Richard was picking up, if he left the band, Chrysalis got first choice, because um, obviously they've spent all the money getting Living the Box to where they are. Richard is a name to some degree. Um, and they give him, you know, they were going to give him a big check, which they ended up doing. And so he managed to short circuit, ever having to put anything out. He gets a big lump of cash. He gets to do a solo album and we lose our singer. Um, and I said to him at the time, I said, Richard, not even Mick Jagger has managed to leave the Stones and have a successful solo career. George Michael has just done it, but you're going to count the numbers of artists, Steve Winwood probably, but very few who leave a band environment, solo artists and go solo and have a successful career. And he went, I probably am making the biggest mistake, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I went, OK, what can I do? I mean, in that sense, he left you for a better sort of phrase. He left you a little bit in the shit. You know, you'd had these five years of massive success and those yeah. five years. And I don't think they do define you because we'll come to that later. But these five years in that sense at that time had defined who you were. So mm -hmm. how did you I know that you carried on songwriting, but how did you feel emotionally at that time about your life? Well, you, I mean, I remember saying to him um, and every artist would agree with this. You need luck. It doesn't matter how good you are. You need some luck, but you work for that luck. You create your own luck, but you need it. And we'd had a, we'd had our break. We'd got living in a box away. We were a brand name to some extent. You know, it's like trying to find that again is really bloody hard, you know. So so it was it was it was bad times. It was like, well, Jesus, what do we do now? And would I have done anything differently? Would I have just quickly replaced him with somebody? The record company, of course, by that stage, are all going, whoa, shit. You know, we, we've got a solo artist, so with that, we just paid more money for that. So living in a box, we're not really interested in what you've got to say. 
And I was a bit burnt from the whole thing and just thought, I'm just not going to do anything for, for now. I, I, I actually don't know what to do. Um, I mean, there are points in life, aren't there, when we go, I don't know what to do. It's, you know, we've all played clever. Oh, yeah, this is all a good idea. And this is always a plan. No, I just did not know what to do next. So there were a couple of years, really, more than a couple of years, where I just sort of I'd met other songwriters that I, I, I wrote some songs for other artists, wrote some more songs with Albert Hammond. Um, and without the vehicle to write for, it soon became really apparent that personally, for me, I am not a jobbing songwriter for hire. I admire the guys who are, who can go around and they can read a brief and they can drop a song on and it'll be absolutely spot on. It will be a hit. I am not that guy. I need to be writing songs for me, for my band to do my thing with my ideas. And personally, to me, I can't go out and write a three minute pop song for an artist I have no connection with. You know, So that was a very strange time, really, and, and sort of ended me in the career for about, I suppose I was in the wilderness probably for about eight years, I should imagine, before I decided that I wanted to do something else, you know. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I think that's interesting. You see, even it's fascinating that you say eight years, um, because when I lost my career and I'd come to Germany, ran a TV channel, lost my career, it was 10 years before I could sit up again and do something else. Right. But I look back at that time and I say that completely defined who I am today. And thank God mm. that happened. How yeah. do you look back at that dark period and when did it start changing again? Because I know that you've really moved on into something which is also wonderfully successful. Mm. Well, I think, you know, you, what it does take, you know, you're stunned for a while. And certainly if you're a creative, being stunned, as you will know, is not ideal. It's not like we are accountants and we can go and add some more sums up. You know, it really completely wrecks your emotional centre um, and takes a while to sort of put the pieces back together. And so, you know, I met my wife, we moved on, had a family. Um, I experimented with all sorts of other different things that I wanted to, to look at, um, but always came back to music because at the end of the day, that's what I do. Um, and I, I love doing it. And I wanted to find a new way to express myself musically where I could retain my control that I just referred to. So I'm not, so I'm writing for a vehicle, for a, for a project that is mine in entirety in my own control. And I fortunately, I found it once my kids were very young um, with the Little Big TV project and uh, Kids Trucks TV as it's now become. And now we're doing a new series of, of animation. Um, and that's just grown because I, I, I'm a control freak, right? I mean, I just love being able to be totally responsible for things. And that was the problem, I think, in those wilderness years where, um, I, I just get pulled from pillar to post. And go, oh, yeah, go, you know, my pub should be dropping with all with these individuals and nothing really worked for me. Um, and so, yeah, I had to take control and find a new creative project. And the industry had changed. So let's not forget, as you well know, the digital revolution, for better or worse, um, came into play. So what you did as an artist and how you could earn money from it completely collapsed in around 2000. Um, and so it's like, well... You know, YouTube became a thing, um, but, you know, the, the sort of certain technologies converged to get me excited about what I could possibly do as an independent without having to sign a record deal and sign my life away. I could do it completely off my own bat. And by the mid to late 2000s, it was a sustainable business model to basically 
make make your own programs, which I ended up doing educational programs for kids. What's what sort of triggered that um, at the actual idea? I know you wanted to find something, but what actually triggered this particular thing? Um, two things: having a three-year-old son who <laughs> stood absolutely aghast every time a tractor went by, or a bus, or a bin lorry, uh, or a digger. You know, it was just like you know, almost shaking with excitement. And I thought, well, that's an interest, you know, and they all do it. You know, they all, they still do it. Uh, our machines, as they will tell you in kids' telly, are king, you know. Um, but, you know, And my wife, who's from Boston in the States, had just come back from um, Boston, and she'd, her, her brother, who lives over there, had just bought a VHS of a, uh, a locked-off camera on a building site, which I think it was, like, number one in the U.S. video chart. Uh, and it obviously cost about 30p to put together. And it was shocking. It was awful. But my son loved it. And she and Tish said to me, well, why don't we do something with, with your music? Put some songs in it, put a little character in it. Or maybe we can get some guys to film some tractors going up and down a field. Um, and so it was her idea. Um, and I thought, well, this sounds great. And we know we've got a ready-made audience in our kids that are at home, you know, ready to sample test it. And so we thought, well, we're living in Chiswick. There aren't many tractors going up and down Chiswick High Road. Um, better get on the phone and see if we can get some tractor action going. We'll start with tractors. So we phoned up John Deere, who happened to be probably the biggest agricultural machinery company in the world, and blagged about four and a half million pounds worth of kit in Suffolk. They never asked the question if I'd done this before. Lucky break because the answer would have been no, or I might have blagged it, actually might have blagged it. But anyway, they went, yeah, sure. Well, if you want to film some stuff, there's, there's, there's some machinery and stuff that we're on, that's on test with some farmers. So we got a mate who got a camera, we stood in the field, we filmed the tractors going up and down, and then we thought, well, let's film a farmer and try and get a little bit of storyline. You know, and I tried to remember all those shows that I used to watch as a kid that had got that sort of slightly mom and pop, really nice sort of warm feel, but educational. Then I'll start writing a song. So I wrote Here Comes a Tractor, which became this sort of phenomenon. Um, and then we called the, the show Here Comes a Tractor. And we did Here Comes a Fire Engine, Here Comes a Digger, Here Comes a Train. And they went off. And I remember putting it up on YouTube. Nothing happened for about six months. In fact, we'd sold them physically on DVDs just before DVDs then passed on and YouTube came its thing. And anyway, on YouTube, nothing happened for about six months 50 views, 500 views, 5,000 views. Oh, okay. And I didn't look at it for about, I don't know, nine months, a million views, two million views, five million, 15 million. It was like, oh, my God, what's happening? And then, of course, the revenue stream starts to come in. The songs we started to put on, you know, Spotify and, and, and Apple Music. And then we got this huge fan base, which, which was just unbelievable. So I got the magic back. I got the magic back. What um, do you think that you needed from the business acumen that you must have learned from being a pop star in you know from 85 to 90 and having all that success and and suffering sort of those failures along the way as it were from mm. the record company what what do you think you learned from that time which has made you make the right decisions for this project well i think again there's a little bit of luck and and you know let's 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 be honest, as you're moving from a, an analog world selling a physical project to a digital world selling a digital product, that has to exist for me to have been able to do what I did. So that the, the, the layer of the land had to be right. 
Um, and in terms of business, well, you know, you can always look at a model in terms of trying to work out how much it is you're going to co- it's going to cost you to film this stuff. So relatively cheaply and also what revenue streams you're going to get. And I didn't really know what revenue streams we were going to get because I didn't know how many streams you'd need to be able to get, uh, get some income going on on YouTube and what you could do with it. Um, and the power that, that you would have with it and, and, and developing subscribers and a fan base, essentially, that you can say anything to and talk to and communicate and involve in the brand. So I don't know. There are maybe there are, there are similarities. It's, it's distribution is king, isn't it? It always has been you know, for artists to try and get their music out there, their artwork out there, or whether it's NFTs now with people doing artwork or whether it's, you know, Bitcoin and understanding how that works and blockchain and blah, 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 blah. So YouTube, social media, Instagram, so on and so forth. Um, these are all sort of things that I found just naturally very easy to understand and work with, um, mainly because I've worked with computers and everything from sequences right through to mixing desks. And so technologically, I understood how it worked and uh, it, it was not uh, something I was afraid of. Uh, I think what was really nice as I come back to is that I could control all the content completely. Um, and as we're working to now to start working with animation and, and understanding how that works and to change the characters and, and take this project further into something even bigger and books and, you know, all the stuff that you can do in, in kids entertainment. Um, that is the new frontier for me and what I'm going to be involved in for the next five or 10 years, you know, and I love it. Even What's though my f- kids are now, now, now at university, but I mean, you know, it's, um, I'm still, I'm still tuned into it. What's the success of here comes a, um, the central factor in you being able to allow yourself to say, okay, why not let's go back on stage? Why not let's reform in inverted commas and and uh, be back on stage as living in a box? I believe you've done sort of one performance in 2004, but actually yeah. to sort of come back as a, as a reformation <laughs> of living well, in a box. Well, there was two, yes, there was, there was two. We, but in 2004 was our performance where Richard joined the band. I mean, he came back in. Uh, it hadn't worked out for Richard. He got so disillusioned with the music industry, even more so when he got it. Even you know, I think he found out how hard it really is. And I think I, I, you'd have to ask him, but I think there probably would be regrets there that we we were there. You know, we were known. We if we got we got a record company who was making a third album, we should have given it a go. But it didn't work out that way. It didn't work out for Richard once he'd left the band. Um, and so it was quite an easy when we were offered this tour, which was which was a, an arena tour. Um, in 2004, I, I said to him, look, do you want to do it? And he went, well, why not? And we got together and it was great. We really enjoyed it. Richard had made it very clear to me at that stage that he, although he'd, he'd enjoyed it, he was, he's still one of the most nervous performers with this incredible voice and incredible ability to play guitar. Um, it's just astounding to me that he's so terrified, but he didn't feel that he wanted to do it anymore. Um, some years later, we were offered tours and we go out now and do all the rewinds and the let's rocks and we still do those and we're doing um, some more this year. Um, so we've been touring, doing the sort of, if you like, a, a hobby thing, which all the artists do, I suppose, maybe they're t- topping up their pension pots and we don't get enough money to, to do that, but it, we love doing it. I mean, I think in the day we didn't do much live work because of MTV. We were basically spending more on a video than a live tour. Um, and uh, technologically, it was also a bit tricky because we we're using so many sequences and it wasn't as easy as it is now to transfer that. But anyway, um, so, yeah, like the live thing is very much something that I'm hoping we can right the wrong of never really doing it much in the day, in the moment and do quite a bit of late now doing these wonderful H's tools, which are, you know, all over the place. Um, and we're, we're very much part of that. Was it a difficult decision at the beginning, though, because obviously Richard was a, a part of this 
you know, what you're currently doing. And that's also mm. changed again. But actually, like, looking for a new vocalist and playing into that is the fact of the anonymity in the past, in a sense. Well, yeah. May have played well, into the fact that you can be successful with a different vocalist. Well, this is true. I mean, there was that is the one upside, uh, as I say, is the anonymity in terms of being able to walk the streets at the time when everything was happening for us was one thing many, many decades later. Um, because nobody's really quite sure. I mean, the real diehard fans um, obviously know Richard's music inside out, and there was always some kind of phobia about, well, can you imagine trying to replace? I mean, for me personally, I had to get over the fact, well, um, you know, Richard was so much of a distinctive voice with that booming Michael McDonald versus J James Brown edge. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, how are we going to replace that? And then once I got over the fact that we weren't going to replace it, you know, not usurp it in a way. Let's do something else with living in a box. Let's, 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 why does it need to be specifically that era? It could be anything. We could move on. We could even do new, new music. That's another conversation. But let's see who's around and uh, and i just uh, we were offered all these amazing gigs which we turned down year after year after year and richard titch and i were going well bloody hell we should you know we're not gonna be here forever if we're gonna do it let's do it let's find somebody else well we're gonna need a singer dude you know well let's see who we've got and i just went through my mind of people that i've met who i thought were never going to be possibly how richard was but would get give a good account of themselves and possibly take it somewhere else um and there's nothing wrong with that. And many artists, as we know, uh, from Queen to Wet, 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 to, you know, loads of them have changed their lead singers. Um, it's just the way of the world and it can be very successful. So Kenny Thomas's head came into, name came into my head and we'd been stable mates at Chrysalis Records uh, called Tempo and I'd known the stuff that he'd done. And I thought, well, he hasn't got the bite and the oomph necessarily that Richard's got, but he has got the soul and, and that's really crucial. Um, so I asked, phoned him up and said, listen, this might sound a bit mad, but we've got some gigs coming up. Do you want to be part of Living in a Box for the gigs? And he went, let me think about it. <laughs> Next day, he phoned me up went, yeah, absolutely. You know, I love it. I said, these are the songs we're going to do. He said, oh, Room in Your Heart, sing a song, man. I've got to sing that song. I've always wanted to sing. I used to dance around my bedroom singing that song. To actually sing it to a big audience would be just awesome. And we did, and we did it for three years. And we had the most hilarious time. I don't know whether you know Kenny, but he is a bit of a comedian. In fact, if, if, if his music business ever fails him any further, then he can have a great career in stand-up. But we had a great laugh and it was really fun. And it was brilliant to get all the songs back together again and do a bit of Kenny music and a little bit of Living in a Box. And I think people were a bit like, hmm, this would be interesting. Living in a Box featuring Kenny Thomas. How's that going to work? But once we'd got there and the promoter saw it, he went, shit, this works really well. This really goes really, really well. And we do a couple of covers to Living in a Box and Kenny Thomas. Um, and there's a couple of shows up on YouTube, I think live at Lytham, if you look at Living in a Box and Kenny Thomas, that's a bloody good show with a, a good video and you can hear it working really well, really well. It's brilliant. But Kenny's now moved on. Yes, Kenny moved on. And who, who are you working with now and why did you choose uh, this so, so, yeah, so Kenny wanted, you know, we had lockdown and it's tough for everybody. Kenny's been always more of a working musician, um, has never really stopped. Um, whereas, as we've been describing with Living in a Box, that's not the case. We've only really dipped our toes back in, in the live scene relatively recently. Um, and he was offered, offered the opportunity to make a new solo album um, and to do a tour because it was the 35th anniversary or the 30th anniversary of Voices. I can't remember. Decades have gone by. Um, and so schedule wise, we were starting to get off the date. So I was saying, Kenny, we got this day. And we were like, gosh, I can't do it. And this one is like, oh, now we've got a real 
problem here. So Ken, we just decided mutually it was, it was best that Kenny went off and, and did his thing. And with our blessings, fine, it's all good. Um, but then again, it's like, oh, I've been here before. <laughs> How many singers can a band have? But again, because we were fairly en enigmatic, um, not so much of a problem. And I'd spoke to a few people, Martin Ware being principally one of them. And again, I'd, Martin Fry being another one who are very close friends and said, look, I don't want to make a titter myself. I'm not going to go, go out trying to drag this smelly old thing around with me and drag it around the clubs and, and, and fields of uh, event world. If it's not going to work, I'm not going to flog it to death. I'll just call it a day. I don't, I, you know, I'm a cat, but I, I'm not going to try and drag all the good things that we've done over the years down by just finding anybody who can do anything. And, they, and the name Brian J. Chambers came up from both of them, mainly from Martin Ware, who'd worked with a couple of backing singers, who I'd also worked with, who'd worked with him um, when we did a show to raise some money for Kenny's daughter, um, which I organised for, for Kenny and got involved with all the 80s artists that I'd worked with over the years and Beverly Knight. And Beverly Knight is a good old friend of, of Kenny's and Brian Chambers works a lot with, with Beverly. And so I'd spoken to her about, and it had just become a, a sort of like, this is the name that seems to be cropping up all the time. And then I got on the internet, as you do, before I, before I contact and have a look at what he's done. And I, was, I saw his show with Pink Floyd at Pompeii, and he took a couple of lead vocals. I saw the duet that he did with, with Beverly Knight at the um, one of was it a Royal Variety show, or was a show at the Palladium, I think, in London. And it was just like, oh, this is this this is another Richard. In a way, he's got the power and he's got the grit and the punch, and, and he you know he's worked with everybody. I mean, he's just a brilliant session guy, but has also worked, you know, the house scene back in the 90s as a solo act and ended up in Butlins at two o'clock in the morning, getting the audience going. So, you know, he can do that as well. So I asked him and he, and he thankfully, he thought about it again for a bit and then said, well, why not? Let's do it. So we're going to go out this summer with Brian taking over the lead vocals. And it should be, from what I've heard from our rehearsals, absolutely full on. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned, uh, obviously, all the way through Titch, who must be a close friend of yours because you've you've had this close relationship all you know throughout the years. Martin yep. Ware, who I know is a close uh, friend of yours. Martin Fry, ABC, who you wrote songs for on uh, Lexicon Love Two, I think. And, That's correct. Um, and he's a close friend. Now I know that some of you go away on holiday together. What is it about this group of uh, all have been and and successful in their life? And all yeah. have been musicians in their yeah. life. What yeah. is it? Is it that what you have that connects you, or is it something else that sort of deeply connects you? I mean, I think Sheffield is probably a connection as well. well obviously, I mean, I, I didn't know. I, I wasn't in a position to know that I sort of knew, I knew knew of them in Sheffield as like bow down to the great ones who had broken through the cellophane line and were all over my television on a Thursday night or whenever it was for Top of the Pops at the time. So. It wasn't really until I'd moved to London that I had that I met these guys, which is really strange. I never actually exchanged a word with them in Sheffield because I'd be watching them do a gig and they would be like the gods, you know. Um, so I, I'd met them in Sheffield because, you know, you just do as you're doing the circuit. And, you know, they were a bit before living in a box, but still. And we just hit it off really, really well. And I've been on holidays with Martin Fry and Julie, his wife, and in fact, had lunch with them about three or four days ago. We still see a lot of each other martin ware is part of a group that do as you say go around on my boys trip um which we do every year um we're going to uh san sebastian in uh, spain on a culinary uh foodie thing and bill bow to go and see the guggenheim we're going in a couple of weeks 
And they are all from the north or, you know, in the music industry. And it is a bit like a busman's holiday. I mean, it really is. Oh, we, we, we just potter about and talk about the, the days and the music industry and what we're all doing now. And, you know, Martin is a, an octopus of tentacles that go out into all sorts of different things, from whether it's his 3D sound installations to all sorts of other. He's never, he's never shy of a project. So I'm usually sitting there in awe listening to what the next thing is. Um, where he's become a professor of this or a whatever it is of that. Um, and we've just become really good buddies, you know, really, really good buddies. You know, he's the godfather to my, um, to my son, JJ. And, you know, we, we have just been mates for all these years. And Sheffield Wednesday fans, we go and see them play whenever we can. He's, he's died in the wall, Sheffield Wednesday. And, um, yeah, we just, I don't know, it's weird, isn't it? But we've just become solid buddies, solid. Now, when I started this, podcast interview with you I said you know that you played an important role for me um during the 80s because of your music and plus of someone being on MTV you know <laughs> your videos were were on you know high rotation a lot of the time so in you know in essence that fed into my life during that era what fascinated yeah. me when I went uh to out to the local cafe actually this morning and someone asked me oh what are you doing today and I said oh I'm interviewing Marcus Fear, no reaction, living in a box. Oh, living in a box, you know, immediately. And yeah. they are under 30. Right. And it's amazing. There's something about living in a box which connects different generations. I think it's probably actually that 80s music somehow connects a lot of people. Um, yeah. But what do you think it is? Is it because you were on different soundtracks? You're on games soundtracks? You yeah, know what I, I mean? think there's a, yeah. Um, well, you're right. I mean, wherever I go in the world, you know, you're sitting by a pool somewhere, some, you get to know someone over a couple of cheeky beers and they might say, well, what do you do when they picked up the courage to ask the impudent question? Um, and you say, oh, I was in the pop group. And they'll, they'll, you can see them mulling it over their head. They could be from anywhere. I was recently in Mexico, for example. And, um, and they'll go, Any, anybody we know? And I'll, I'll go, well, how old are you? And they'll go, well, I'm whatever I am. And I'll go, well, I was in a band called Living in a Box. And they go, what? What? I've been living in a cardboard box. And it's like, yeah, it, 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 it is that. And then again, maybe another upside to the eponymous nature of it. Because if I said we were in the doohickeys and we had a song called Living in a Box, well, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, so it's, it is really, really well known. But I think in terms of young audiences, first of all, who are, by the way, I know my kids are, but then, of course, they'd have to be, um, Eighties still, even my mates, my kids' mates are big into the eighties. They're really, really big into the eighties. And I think they can hear and smell and feel all that we felt about the individual nature of that music and how different it is. But how, what fantastic songs and great sounds and risk taking that went on in terms of the records that went on. Also because of Grand Theft Auto V, which Living in a Box was included in, in, um, the, yeah, the, the Grand, Grand Theft Auto V, which was in 2013. Um, became the second biggest selling video game of all time. And that's quite, quite something. And, and, you know, so you jump in a car and you smash into some grannies pushing prams um, <laughs> and you can turn the radio on in the car and living in a box will come on. So you, you are talking about, um, you know, 150 million selling product um, that's introduced our music to that generation. Um, so for sure, a lot of fan base that we get on our socials or, or stuff that goes through the website and emails are going, oh, I just 
got in the car and I really got into you, your song Living in a Box. We've just got into the first album and Gate Crashing. We're also getting into that as well. And it's really sweet how you vertically sell these things from one lead off into, into a video game. Of course, it didn't even exist really uh, in, in when that song was written to becoming another, another launch pad globally. So we were very thankful for them, uh, to Rockstar Games, who put us on that. It was great. A final note, throughout the interview, you said, right place, right time. Uh, I was lucky. It was luck that Richard Derbyshire was in the studio. It was luck that this happened. It was luck that that happened. Um, and even when you talk about your kids' truck TV, you mentioned the word, you know, luck, that you were lucky. Um, mm. But isn't luck basically a combination of talent and possibly, in your case, just being a nice guy. Do you know what I mean? Well, luck, that's very kind. You know. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, you know, you can have as much unluck or bad luck um, as you can have good luck. Um, I just, I'm fairly karmic, as you can tell, you know what I mean? I, I believe that what you do in good things and the way you deal with people um, does come back positively or negatively, depending on how you are. Luck, you've got to create it. You've got to have it at the end of the day. I mean, that's what I'm doing with my kids now. You know, they're, they're at university. They're going to just starting to look at what careers they want to go into. And I said, you've got to have the ticket. You've got to get in. You've got to be in the room. So you get your degree or whatever qualifications, your skill set. And then you've got to, obviously, a bit of people skills too. And then a bit of luck will come into you probably meeting the right person who's the right job, got the right job for you. But you've got to make it. You've got to put yourself about. You know, I think as we often hold ourselves back creatively, I know a lot of creatives do because they haven't got the outgoing spirit that they might be genius programmers or songwriters, but they don't push the music. They don't have the right people because they haven't put themselves in that position. So you earn your luck, for sure. You make it. We all know this. And it's sometimes as a creative, the going back to the idea of a box that is not really there, you just perceived it to be there and that's what holds you back. So if you can just break through it, get out there and make that luck happen, then maybe you're going to be luckier than someone who doesn't. Brilliant. That's a wonderful final note. And thank you, Marcus, for your contribution to music, which has been very, very important. And I wish you continued success with all your ventures and hopefully one day I'll see you on stage in the not too distant future. Well, I hope so, Steve. Well, thank you for asking me. It's been a real pleasure. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 